My chance to go watch Made in China. We play ping pong ball Made in China. Hi, my name is Monty, and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm here today with Cynthia Eslund, a leading scholar of labor and employment law and the Catherine A. Reen Professor of Law at New York University. She's the author of a book, A New Deal for China's Workers, which examines China's changing labor landscape and compares it to the U.S. experience with industrial unrest and workers acquiring of the New Deal. Uh, Professor, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, just to start off, um, looking at your career, you spent most of your academic career studying the U.S. labor market. So what got you interested in writing from a comparative perspective about China? Well, I took my first trip to China uh, late, actually, 2009, and I wasn't intending to um, do any research there. Um, But I did arrange to speak with some people about the labor situation. Of course, I'd been reading the New York Times, which has very good coverage of these issues. And it seemed very interesting. It seemed interesting um, in in some ways the echoes that I heard of uh, our U.S. New Deal, that is, um, you had uh, expanding organization, the largest organizing, union organizing drive in the history of the world. You had um, a very significant, by that time, uh, a very significant new suite of uh, labor laws, raising labor standards. Um, And all in all, it um, seemed like a potentially promising, maybe even a breakthrough moment for China. Um, When I went there and spoke to people, I found some of my thinking about it just completely turned upside down. Uh, Things, it was like walking through the looking glass. Um, So it suddenly seemed to me to be the most interesting place in the world from a labor perspective. And um, the question was whether I, as, as you say, Um, uh, basically an American or Western uh, labor law expert would have anything to say um, and whether I would be able to make the contacts that I would need to learn enough. Um, And I I found that uh, I had an unbelievable platform for doing that at NYU. And so um, I was able to, um, I took 15 trips and of course read stacks and stacks of books and I had incredible uh, help in contacting some of the leading people, uh, and uh, all in all, decided that uh, coming into this uh, situation as a relative, an educated newcomer, um, that I did actually have something to say, especially to people like me, who uh, have been watching China out of the side of their eyes, really. Um, and not knowing what to make of it. Yes, and I think this um, this sort of comparison between the U.S. is very interesting and maybe not very obvious at first sight. Because no, I think, no. Uh, and in fact, I, yeah. I do want to underscore the, since this is audio and you don't see the title. The title of the book is "A New Deal for China's Workers?" Question mark. And that question mark is very critical. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to say, um, uh, during the time. I um, was writing this book or researching this book, so 2009 until um, basically 2016, I saw a dramatic rise and fall of uh, the prospects for a real breakthrough in anything like a New Deal form. I mean, there was never a prospect of a true American New Deal, which was a 
a product of um, grassroots mobilization, um, free speech and politicking, such as China simply doesn't permit. But um, in 2010, shortly after I started seriously studying China, of course, the Honda strikes just captured the world's attention, and it captured China's attention as well. And for the next several years, there was a flurry of uh, discussions at high-level academic discussions, which I assume had their parallel somewhere in the highest reaches of government, about uh, collective bargaining and uh, making the unions, the official unions, a more effective, more representative sort of body. Um, since then, um, that had, that seems to have crested, and uh, labor has been pushed somewhat to the back burner, and the prospects. And then uh, in 2015-16, there was a series of detentions and crackdowns on labor activists that have been extremely discouraging of the prospects for a real um, breakthrough. If we can just go in a bit more detail for where this initial sign that there was that um, sort of a movement towards more rights for China's workers, where that was coming from. Because I think in your book, you really have a nice historical analysis of labor rights sort of since the era of Deng Xiaoping. And as you point out, uh, in the era of reform and opening, you had actually two distinct strands of policy. So you had reform in the planned economy and the state-owned enterprise sector, and then opening up of China to foreign trade and investment. And this policy shift had a profound effect on the lives of workers in both the sort of the uh, state-owned enterprises and on the rural population who now could move from the countryside and work in factories in the coastal regions. And could you perhaps elaborate on how this profile change in the Chinese economy affected the, uh, the position of China's workers and how this led to the 2000s, how this led you to believe that there might be a breakthrough moment? Well, the um, reform of the state-owned industries, which, of course, um, until about 1976, was all China's uh, serious industry, um, that was a, um, a sort of fairly carefully staged process uh, in which workers moved from uh, what was called then the iron rice bowl uh, model. They... they they were virtually owned by their work unit, and they, but they also virtually owned their job. So it was a real permanent connection between the workers and their work unit, and they got everything through the work unit, their education, their housing, their health care, everything for their children, their retirement came, such as it was, came through the work unit. Um, that was gradually... Uh, disassembled, taken apart, dissolved, um, as the state-owned industries began to mimic in many ways um, market-driven, privately-owned um, organizations. They've never totally um, come to resemble capitalist-style enterprises, but they moved very sharply in that direction, particularly with regard to the commodification of labor. And labor was converted from this um, membership model, if you could call it that, to a contract model where workers could be um, fired, moved around, laid off uh, when it was profitable to do so. Um, the, um, I 
uh, have focused much more on the development in uh, after what was called the opening, in which um, both domestic Chinese entrepreneurs and um, uh, foreign, especially overseas Chinese entrepreneurs, were invited in, often in conjunction with uh, some state ownership, sometimes under the auspices of the old town and village enterprises. In any event, um, there was this opening to foreign capital and opening to market forces that um, eventually, since since the 19, early 1980s, has become, um, by most measures, the larger share of China's total economic um, output and larger share of the workforce. And um, that was uh, initially a kind of, um, well, this sounds very American, but a wild, wild west, uh, laissez-faire, anything goes to a great extent kind of process. There was no real... Um, you know, regulatory structure, because in the old days, when when management was the state, was a you know a party official that could just you could just order them to to do uh, what you thought was appropriate. You didn't really have regulation as we know it. It takes quite a while to develop a regulatory structure that's designed designed to deal with um, private opportunity, opportunistic, profit-seeking entities that can't simply be ordered around. And that, that was a slow process. And I don't think um, it was started in earnest at the beginning because the idea was we just need to get growth. We just need to, it was growth above all else. And so um, exploitation of workers was, uh, was expected. It was rampant. It was facilitated by the fact that most of the workers were um, coming from the countryside. They were, you know, impoverished agricultural uh, workers uh, who really um, had no viable alternative and were not accustomed to um, acting collectively. They were not accustomed to um, speaking back. This was um, a generation, the first generation was... uh, Quite, a, you know, very imbued with the ideology of Maoism and serving your country for lots of reasons. The first generation put up with a lot of um, egregiously abusive conditions, ridiculously long hours, horribly dangerous conditions. But gradually, um, China's workers, especially the next generation started to feel entitled to something better. They started becoming more attached to their lives in the urban sector. They um, started learning how to um, act collectively. And in that respect, that does kind of replicate the history of, um, you know, labor and capital across the industrializing world. Um, There is a period of severe exploitation and workers tend to get together and rebel against it and start putting demands on their bosses and demands on the state. And Because the state controls so much in China, because people were uh, in the habit of expecting the state to protect them and give them everything that they needed, those demands became um, potentially political. 
Yes, exactly. And I think it's interesting because you you mentioned that workers more and more um, started organizing and um, um, at, at grassroots sort of organizations started rebelling at these really horrendous conditions in which they were working. But I think perhaps for people who are not familiar with China's labor landscape, it is important to point out that it's not actually allowed for workers to organize or to form right. unions as it is in the West. Right. So um, when I spoke earlier about the largest union organizing drive in the history of the world, that union is the All-China Federation of Trade Unions, and it's um, literally, I believe, it's between a million and two million branches if you go all the way down to the enterprise level. So this is a, a hierarchically organized um, federation of unions that um, has its that's that's under the control of the party at the top at the national level. Its provincial branches are under the control of the provincial party, and all the way down to the local level. And the enterprise level is um, nominally under the control of the enterprise level Communist Party chapter, which every enterprise is required to have. Now, um, at the enterprise level, management has uh, historically exercised the upper hand, has actually controlled those unions. When I say control, um, there's nothing very abstract about that. Um, uh, all the way to the, from the top, all the way down to the enterprise level. When I say it's under party control, it means the party actually appoints the officers of the union. The workers have no electoral mechanism at all to um, influence who is in charge of the union. Um, at the enterprise level, they have essentially no voice in whether the union will be there, um, and they have historically had essentially no voice in uh, uh, electing their own union officers, even within a factory, say. That um, is in tension with what the procedures are supposed to be, and um, it varies quite a lot, and that is one of the things I studied is uh, union elections, that is, elections for union officers, and how that's changed and how workers began to... Um, this is sort of come in waves, and unfortunately prior waves of um, interest in promoting democratic elections have crested and, and fallen, um, and that may happen here too. I, I saw a wave of interest, both from academia and um, from policy levels and from workers themselves, in promoting actually democratic elections. Um, so. That, that requires a little bit more explanation. I think China is second only to India in having um, uh, the, the largest number of elections in the world per year. But what these elections are typically, and, and now this, this extends to um, elections for uh, representatives to the People's Congresses um, as well as union elections, um, the principle followed by the Communist Party in these elections is um, first selection, then election. What that means is first the party selects the acceptable candidates. And then um, there is a more or less and often less 
uh, free process of electing among those acceptable candidates. Now, you know, anyone who has any familiarity with elections understands that that is um, not exactly a, um, a democratic way of choosing one's own leaders. Um, it's not nothing because uh, conventionally there has to be um, there have to be more candidates than there are positions. And what that means is that, and let's take it down to the union um, enterprise, the enterprise level union, that means that the unions, the, the workers, if there's an actual election, which there sometimes has been, the workers could vote out an unpopular incumbent. So they could, you know, if, if there's one more candidate than there are positions, they could vote out the incumbent. So, you know, it's not nothing. It sends a message, but it's not a way to choose your leaders. There's another form of election that's known in China. It's officially the um, mode of elections in at the village level, which is a, um, a sort of famous and much... Uh, much researched phenomenon in China, the the um, attempt to democratize village elections. It's called Haishuan elections. I'm probably not saying that perfectly right, but it means see elections. It means that anyone can be a candidate. It means you can put yourself forward. It means you can put your friend or um, the, the person that you regard as your best representative, you can put that person forward. Um, that is... Um, it is a known phenomenon. It has sometimes been used in uh, enterprise-level unions, but it's uh, very the the powers that be are very stingy with those kinds of elections because, and they're quite frank about it, really, because they're afraid of losing control. Mm-hmm. They're afraid that the workers might elect hotheads. Um, they it might um, allow for a sort of coalescing of militancy and rebellion uh, and so those Haishuan elections are um, rare and they are um, they're not supposed to be used in places where where workers are sort of um, are actively uh, organizing themselves where there's sort of signs of independent activism that's not where you're supposed to be using Haishuan elections of course that's exactly where um, from a Western industrial relations perspective, the whole point of having um, independent or responsive unions, or I shouldn't say the whole point, uh, you know, workers' point is to get a better deal, but the point from a sort of overall societal perspective, a, a major objective of allowing unions to organize people and t- allowing workers to choose their own representatives is to give them an alternative to um, uh, rioting in the streets, to to uh, just um, chaotic rebellion, to s- set up the conditions for constructive uh, bargaining between labor and management, um, and so in um, in a situation of widespread labor agitation and and conflict, especially, and I'm, now I'll go back again to the U.S. New Deal, um, where that conflict is is becoming occasionally violent, where it's becoming overtly political, as it did in the U.S. in the 1910s, 20s, 30s. Um, uh, that is, 
extremely threatening to any society um, and in the West in different ways at somewhat different times across the middle of the 20th century the solution was found to be um, some variation on independent unions and collective bargaining. And so that's what people were looking for and were trying to see the signs of, I say people, people who were um, viewed themselves as the allies of workers were looking for signs that that's where China might be heading. That between um, some independent labor organizing that was very... um, it was very informal because any formal, as you said earlier, um, any formal organizing of something that purported to be a union is squashed. That's when people get thrown in jail. That's when you get potential prosecutions. Um, that is very closely guarded. But informal organizing, um, which is you know, fairly widespread in the South, um, some combination of creating more space for that. This is what this is what people were hoping for. So more space for independent agitation and, and workers selecting their own leaders and um, a sort of increasingly organized form of um, of labor organization outside the ACFTU, the All China Federation of Trade Union structure, and. The ACFTU unions and the the official enterprise unions and official unions all the way up, um, hopefully they would become more democratic and more responsive. Now, so responsive, um, sure, the party can say, hey, you unions down there at the local level better be more responsive to workers or we're all going to be in trouble. But um, the interest in using democratic mechanisms for ensuring responsiveness, that was um, uh, very cautious, a few experiments, um, there was uh, a sort of rising interest in it and rising talk about it and maybe sort of rising support for some experiments. As far as I can tell, that has crested somewhat. Um, and so we're sort of back to wondering where China is going. Um, will it go down the path that other major industrial economies have followed? Um, or are they going to attempt to continue to control collective organizations of labor to be through the party the sole vehicle for legitimate um, uh, labor, collective labor Mm -hmm. representation. I think that also touches perhaps on the main sort of conclusion or thesis of your book, because obviously this labor unrest is something that the Chinese leadership absolutely doesn't want. Like social unrest of any kind is, of course, a big danger to the legitimacy of the CCP. And from a Western perspective, sort of the, the solution for that would be giving uh, unions um, uh, more democracy, allowing workers to present their own representatives so that they don't have to go on the street. And as you mentioned, these protests often get very violent, and that's perhaps necessary for workers to draw the attention 
of the government. But the CCP is absolutely not willing to give any more, uh, uh, to insert more democratization in this, in, in the unions. So do you think that in the long run, this will be sustainable? Do you think the, the CCP will be able to concentrate this, this representation of, 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 uh, workers in the all China Feder- uh, Federation of Trade Unions? Well, um, so my, my overall thesis in the book is that the fear and, uh, the fear of independent union organizing and the commitment to avoid any independent union organizing is casts a very heavy shadow over every aspect of labor policy. So, and that includes the um, labor standards, um, labor regulation regime. It includes um, the discussion and, and, and structure of collective bargaining. Um, it includes the treatment of union elections. It includes some um, uh, other aspects of uh, the, the what's called the Worker Congress system. I saw that phenomenon across the board. But um, the big question, of course, is can they sustain this approach? Does this approach, to be a little bit, you know, to add another element to it, it is a combination of carrots and sticks, as they say. Um, you know, workers, but when they agitate, they draw attention from um, public officials, from official trade union uh, representatives at a, at a higher level, um, and this brings it, it. It serves as a kind of fire alarm in in a, a very popular kind of um, metaphor, and the firefighters come out from the state and they try to put down the fire. They try to get people back to work, and sometimes they have to do that by squeezing management to get some concessions. Um, you know, all the, at at the same time, of course, the threat is that any workers who stick their heads out too far, or if they, um, if if the organization is too explicit, if the leaders are too um, uh, vocal, that uh, repression is obviously always just around the corner. So the combination of repression and concessions, repression and reform, um, is uh, is a um, it's a mode. It's it's not. It's a it's a case by case. It's very um, experimental. It's um, what uh, th- this uh, this this metaphor of whack a mole always occurs to me. But I don't know if it means anything outside um, outside the U.S. But it's a carnival game where you stand there with a mallet or a hammer and. You stand in front of this thing, and these these little um, mechanical creatures pop up, and your the job is to smash them down as fast as possible. But of course, every time you hit one, another one pops up, and pretty soon you can't handle it all. They're they're all over the place. Well, so there's a sense in which China is playing whack-a-mole with labor unrest. If you look at the, if you try, as I do in the book, to compare those sort of overall volume of labor unrest to what was going on in the U.S. in the 1930s. I mean, this may sound like a, a fool's errand, but it's kind. It's quite interesting, and what you find is that the, the actual volume of labor unrest relative to the working population is tiny, tiny, tiny hmm. relative, you know, as a, as a proportional matter relative to what it was in the U.S. at the height of the um, lead-up to the New Deal. Um, 
And so there's, um, when we ask whether China can continue its current approach, can it continue to play whack-a-mole? Can it continue to deal with these, um, these outbursts on a one-off ad hoc basis? Well, uh, obviously, <laughs> that depends uh, whether they proliferate and whether they are contagious. So the most significant, um, the greatest fear for, um, for China's leadership for any one of these incidents is that well, things will become contagious. And one has, you know, one has seen during the Honda strikes, during some other strikes in Guangdong, a certain amount of contagion where workers in a certain industry or, or workers in a certain, um, uh, you know, um, conglomerate structure, uh, the strike in one factory leads to a strike in another. You've seen little um, episodes of contagion, and that is um, that is very scary to the leadership. So um, they are most concerned with stamping out um, the possibility of contagion, of coalescing around um, an organization, of cross-factory organizing. That's the thing that gets their attention, um, and you know that that will get very negative attention. So, um, if they can, can if they can uh, control that, um, keep things from uh, spreading. Uh, then it, you know, I think the idea is if we keep the economy humming along, if we um, make sure that people continue to experience what, let us all admit, they have experienced over the last several decades is an astronomical increase in their overall standard of living. If that, if the economy keeps improving and wages continue to rise as they have quite dramatically over the last 30 years. Um, I think the hope from the leadership is that this too shall pass. So if they look at the U.S. now, what they will see is a um, long and very tumultuous rise of organized labor and um, a period of um, fairly high strike activity in the 30s, continuing into the 40s, 50s, um, surging again in the 60s, and then starting in about 1980, down, 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 down. And across, um, I won't, well, I shouldn't speak about the rest of the world at this point, but um, strike levels in the U.S. right now are um, lower than they've been since records began to be huh. kept. And so I wonder whether China's leaders, who are very aware of history across the world in, in these, um, they're very aware of the history of um, Western labor um, organizing and politics, I, I wonder if they don't look at us and, and say, well, Gee, maybe we can just get to that early from that earlier period. Just, just pass right through and skip that whole period of massive independent union organizing. You know, it's not like written in stone that every country for all time has to go through that pattern. And we know China's done things that no country in the world has ever done. Um, I think they're placing a pretty heavy bet that they can avert that historical pattern and um, 
get through this um, mm-hmm. recent period of very active labor organizing without having to democratize, without having to um, open the doors to independent unions. That I think they're betting very heavily on that. I think that's a very interesting point. And also to bring this back to the comparison with the U.S., because looking at the U.S. in the 1930s, you can sort of imagine in a capitalist economy and capitalist state structure that the government is at first hesitant to grant more uh, rights to workers, perhaps at the expense of the factory owners, of the owners of capital. But for me, it was very ironical, and you pointed also out in your book, that China is still supposedly a socialist worker state. And it's ironic because in China, the free association and organization of capital is allowed, and capital owners of capital enjoy many privileges. And as we've talked about, uh, labor as a factor of production doesn't enjoy any of these privileges, is not allowed to organize independently. So what is sort of the, the reason for this irony in the approach to the factors of production? Right. Um, well, uh, China has been... Well, of course, when we talk about China, it's it's sort of ridiculous. China is a very complicated country, and, and the government is fractured across local and central. But speaking for the moment of um, overall uh, top Chinese decision makers who do control quite a lot, um, they have over since the opening to private and foreign capital have been very focused on keeping good relations and and even um, a sort of measure of control but um, sort of inter- intertwining the interests of the party state and capital and so Many local party officials became capitalists. Many capitalists were invited to join the party, and we know about you know we know vaguely about lots of ways in which um, there's uh, you know mutual, mutually beneficial, uh, and sometimes corrupt interactions between capital. And the party state, and that is a big problem in many ways. So the the effort to actually improve labor standards, which I think was quite serious um, in the starting in the mid two thousands, met resistance from those local party officials and local um, factory owners, local capitalists who were often one and the same. Um, at the same time, this has pretty successfully bought off what might have been thought to be the biggest potential source of political resistance to um, Communist Party control, and that is the capitalists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the capitalists have been kept pretty happy in China. Um, They can pretty much protect their interests through guanxi, as it's called, relationships or connections. Um, And um, the The party state is fairly solicitous. Workers are harder to buy off. Um, The the improvements that they need are more more expensive in a way. Um, But in any event, uh, they pose a much greater threat to party control. Um, The history of 
um, communist regimes and the history of capitalist regimes shows that um, workers, when they successfully organize, can pose a very significant political threat. So, you know, it's, it's just too too striking to pass over the fact that in Poland, um, which some of us are old enough to um, remember, the it was the Polish Independent Trade Union Solidarity that was that spearheaded the movement for democracy that overturned the communist government there, and so that was um, a, a source of enormous alarm from Chinese leaders in the um, starting in the early then mid 1980s. Um, it so happens that the date of the first round of independent democratic elections in Poland uh, was June 4th, 1989. So the, the developments in Eastern Europe, in the what was the Soviet Union, um, were extremely alarming. Um, some of it had to do with labor organizing, um, but you know more broadly, those developments um, were, which seemed then to be echoed, of course, in the independent um, political mobilization that led up to Tiananmen um, in 1989. Um, that really fortified the consensus within the Communist Party that um, this will not be allowed to happen here and what happened in Tiananmen will never be allowed to happen again. We need to nip in the bud um, any kind of um, independent political mobilization that opposes party control. Um, and I think that's what they're doing and obviously um, uh, Xi, Xi Jinping has tightened up the controls and has um, sought to fortify the commitment and even the ideological commitment to one-party control. Now, of course, as you your question points out, what does that ide- ideological commitment consist of um, if it means um, squashing the workers organizing and collaborating and cooperating with the, with the capitalists? Well, I think um, the the party sees itself as the vehicle for national advancement and improvement across the board. Um, and um, the workers are certainly part of that, and the, 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 the government will try, is trying to sort of deliver improvements to the workers in the way that it is comfortable doing so. It has um, been promoting higher labor standards, attempting to build up the regulatory apparatus that's required to enforce those labor standards. It's a hard job, and they have um, made it harder for themselves by cultivating this um, uh, overly friendly relationship between capital and the local officials. Um, But uh, I think that many people at the top in China genuinely believe that one-party control is not only helpful but necessary for the whole nation, including the workers, to continue to advance. Um, Of course, you know, one is inclined to convince oneself of things like that. Um, It is convenient to believe that one-party control is for the best of all. 
but I think that there is some very genuine commitment behind that um, and a rejection of our the Western notion that the only way to ensure the, the the leaders' loyalty to the people is to ensure that the people choose the leaders. That um, they reject the the Chinese leaders reject that very uh, overtly. And to be perfectly honest, you know the performance of the Western democracies in the last um, several years have um, made it much harder for us to go to themselves and uh, to go for us to go to them and say you should do it the way we do it (laughs) you should put yourself on a path toward what we're doing i think they 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 have been um strengthened in their conviction that that is not the way for china that's not the way they're going to (laughs) go it it does seem like that yeah (laughs) um just to um if we're looking at the future and not necessarily at what the what the government is doing but more at sort of structural dynamics that are at work. I think there are perhaps two dynamics that will have a profound effect on sort of the position of Chinese workers in the economy. One, which you already pointed out at the beginning of your, of your book, is this continuing dynamic of global firms moving around the world looking for cheap labor. And as you point out, in the future, a lot of manufacturing jobs will likely move from China to lower cost uh, developing countries such as Bangladesh or Vietnam. And then also um, you have automatization, um, more and more manufacturing jobs being absorbed by machines instead of workers. And this obviously will have a deep impact on Chinese workers. Um, One of the reasons, as you point out, that China's workers currently feel emboldened is the fact that the Chinese labor surplus has turned into a, a shortage. So how do you think this moving uh, away of manufacturing jobs out of China or this automatization, how will this um, af- uh, affect the position of workers in China? You asked some very hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, to some extent, the, the movement of some manufacturing jobs outside of China is very much part of the plan. China had decided, I think, some time ago that they did not want to be the factory of the world. They did particularly mm-hmm. did not want to be producing the apparel and footwear and toys for the world. That That is a low-level, low-skill, low-profit um, mass manufacturing. And um, although they needed it when they had it, um, there was uh, really a, a judgment that over the long run that some of that work should move uh, move on to um, lower cost and um, lower, less developed countries. Although, of course, um, you know, the people from the interior have um, worked very hard, often successfully, to bring that work from the coastal, more developed coastal regions to the interior. So that is, uh, you know, internal movement to the less developed um, uh, jurisdictions. But um, there is a sense, I think, that uh, China, there's a strong commitment for China to move up the value chain into the more um, sophisticated, uh, high-profit sort of leading sectors. So technology, um, uh, branding, uh, the... um, uh, more customized kind of manufacturing, 
um, and, and and to develop its service sector. So it's a very delicate balancing act. You can't, um, you know, if if that happens, if the loss of of man of low level manufacturing jobs happens too fast, you could have a disaster on your hands in terms of worker agitation. Um, and uh, impoverishment. I don't, you know, I think it's it's it, they don't only care about worker um, uh, mobilization and anger. They they care about the conditions that give rise to that. Um, and so uh, they like they try to do with almost everything. They're trying to manage that process. You know, trying to um, uh, keep things in balance through you know a combination of fiscal and um, policy instruments. Um, which is a little bit above my pay grade, how, how exactly that works. There's a lot of criticism of how the economy is being managed, but I, I would just, from a labor perspective, suggest that a major objective is trying to sort of keep a certain equilibrium and balanced process while transitioning to um, a higher level of manufacturing and, um, and non-manufacturing for the economy. Of course, that has um, somewhat paradoxically brought China to a leading position in the automation of manufacturing. And um, so the, they are encouraging investment in robots because they see robots and automated uh, manufacturing processes as being the future of advanced manufacturing. That's... Um, in some tension, obviously, with the um, need to keep jobs around for um, the workers who might otherwise rise up and rebel. Um, but I think w one can see it uh, again in this um, in this light that as long as the economy as a whole grows and we're able to um, sufficiently distribute those uh, the wealth that results to keep people materially on the upward path that um, maybe they can uh, avoid um, the sort of political fallout um, and the labor conflict fallout. Um, that is a, a balancing act and a sort of set of policy challenges that countries all over the world are facing. Um, and we're certainly facing it here. Um, but the bet is that um, China needs to be at the forefront of um, technology and um, the most sophisticated kind of manufacturing, and that's what it's going to take. So will that will they be able to pull that off? Again, that goes back to um, the question we discussed earlier. Um, it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's um, perhaps not so positive note, but a fascinating note to end on. So, Cynthia Estlund, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you. So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code PREPARED20. 
Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.